from Swarthmore College. From Swarthmore College, this is... This is... This is... This is War News Radio. This is Mike, a Ukrainian citizen sharing part of his experience of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We also interviewed Professor Bob Weinberg to give us a brief overview of how this conflict began. I teach European and Russian history at Swarthmore College. I think it goes back probably to the breakup of the Soviet Union and the establishment of an independent Ukraine as a sovereign state uh, that Russia in the 90s acknowledged and recognized diplomatically. And so Ukraine, which had been part of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union for since the 17th, late 17th century, is, is finally an independent country. However, the fall of the Soviet Union led to a rise of Russian irredentism and the desire to restore their nation's former glory. It's not that they want a restoration of the Soviet Union or restoration of communism, but they want a restoration of Russian imperial greatness. And Ukraine for them is an obvious choice, a target for a group of people or for a country that should be reintegrated into a greater Russia. So uh, things had be began to diverge after 1991 when the Ukraine becomes an independent country and uh, begins to promote a, uh, the speaking and the writing and reading of Ukrainian as, as the national language. But many of these cities, regions are very bilingual as are the families. They have a lot of mixed families of Russian people of Russian and Ukrainian descent. Uh, and very and so the, the people growing up in these families have a mixed identity. Over the next two decades, the rise in pro-Western sentiments among the Ukrainian population led to clashes with the pro-Russia government. This led to the Euromaidan revolution in 2014, which saw the old government replaced with a pro-Western one. So Maidan and the meant that uh, Putin lost a loyal ally uh, with the uh, exile of Yanukovych from Kiev to, to Russia and had to then deal with a new government that was looking towards Western Europe, looking towards the West for its uh, future. 
And that didn't sit well with Putin. I think Putin has, to some extent, a reasonable concern that Ukraine might join NATO. Uh, and certainly that would give rise to concerns that Russia is being surrounded by what he believes are hostile forces. He tried to sell the invasion, or the special operations as he calls it, is that he's trying to save Russians living in Ukraine from death, that they were going to be subject or are subject to genocidal tendencies by the Ukrainian government. And so he's playing on this historical knowledge uh, and blowing it out of proportion and uh, to say that what he's trying to do is save Ukraine and Russia from a Nazi resurgence. We sat down with a Ukrainian civilian named Mike, a resident of Lviv, who described his experiences living through the first weeks of the invasion. Okay, so I'm going to start with, with uh, what was happening before the invasion. Uh, the last few weeks of February, uh, everybody was quite anxious, and the general sentiment was that the anxiety was unbearable. Several people told me that uh, they couldn't wait for it to, for the war to either start or not start. And so uh, I was mentally prepared for the war. However, there was a disconnect between the government and civilian position on whether or not war would break out. It seems like everybody was certain the war was going to happen. Uh, here in Ukraine, our newspapers and our governments basically said the same thing, that Russia is not ready for invasion, so an invasion can't happen. Well, uh, it didn't stop them. Uh, but uh, um, generally what was expected was some kind of escalation in Donbass or maybe a limited missile strike, not a full-scale invasion. I think I went to sleep at around 2 or 3 a.m. And when I was looking at Twitter beforehand, there were people talking about how the airports are all getting closed down with vehicles. So I had a suspicion that the war was going to start the next morning. Well, it did. Uh, I was awoken by my mother having a breakdown over her family getting shot in Kharkiv. Uh, as it turned out later, they were, all, they were all fine and didn't get shot. Uh, well, uh, I was in a shock. I think I spent an hour lying in bed just looking to all the news. Um, so then I got, got, got up and spent the rest of my day at my computer looking at the news. Uh, um, I was supposed to have school that day. We obviously didn't have it, but a few of our teachers had lessons online, but uh, we basically talked about the war. I didn't really feel any fear. On the first day, I was too mm, shocked to do anything. On the second day, I texted some of my friends who anywhere part of news organizations to ask them what I could do to help the military. I think the most important uh, time was the first two weeks. That's what made or broke the war. Uh, 
um, like uh, what was it? Um, there was there were a lot of people who had held the military machine and onwards who formed uh, the core for this mobilization now. Uh, after that, I spent the whole day uh, volunteering. I made uh, nets, like uh, to mask things. And after that, I went to the logistics facility, although it's not a logistics facility. It was an art center before the war, to uh, sort and lodge various aid meant for both the military and refugees. And after the next couple of days, uh, I did more or less the same things. Uh, probably the most interesting thing I did was make Molotovs. Uh, and uh, we have school again, although it's uh, four lessons, uh, four days a week. So I get up at like 8 a.m. I go sit at my lessons for five hours, I think. And afterwards I I go do some volunteering work or just relax or go shopping. Oh, my groceries. Uh, basically, all of the shops and most, most businesses are open and they are pretty well stocked now. There was some panic buying in the first few days, but uh, everything got restocked quite, quite quickly. It's not, uh, it's nothing like it was before the war, but it is stable. People go to the, go to work, they get paid, the economy works. Uh, there's still a curfew. I think it's uh, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Um, but uh, some cities also in Western Ukraine have cancelled in time. And there's air raid sirens generally maybe twice a day. Uh, but Lviv uh, itself only got hit twice. So we don't really pay much attention to them. Half the people I know left. Um, a lot of people left for Poland, obviously. But some people went left for other European countries and some went to Canada. I, I thought there would be a lot of fear, a lot of uh, internal strife, but instead we've uh, united behind Zelensky, behind the Ukrainian idea. This feeling of unity was also identified by Professor Weinberg as a national phenomenon in Ukraine. I mean, the lesson that comes out of this is that the invasion has, has strengthened Ukrainian national identity. And that's a civic identity that has nothing to do with culture, because many of the people living in Ukraine would identify as Russian, but they also would identify as Ukrainian citizens and oppose what Russia is doing. We asked Mike about misconception he sees surrounding the war. I think the biggest uh, one is that the war is somehow limited. A lot of people seem to think that if Ukraine just, say, accepted neutral status or when some nationalist parties that uh, the war would be over or hadn't happened. But that's not what the war is about. 
just identity specifically in the modern version but also the historical one is directly opposed to Ukrainian Ukrainian independence like uh, it, uh, Russia uh, traces history back to the Kievan Rus which is well based in Kiev so if they accept that Ukraine is sovereign then they deny that then they can no longer do that they are forced to effectively cut their history by half and so I don't, uh, so uh, Russia and so this war can only end in our victory or all of Ukraine getting taken well I suppose there could be a ceasefire for 20 years or something like that but uh, I serve Ukraine goes, so Russia goes. Mike's aspirations for his future have been affected by the war as well. So, okay, so, in the unlikely scenarios, the war ends before I get to enlist. I'm just going to finish my CS degree and stay in Ukraine. Uh, the same as I was planning before the war. Um, except I might uh, move to, say, Kiev or Kharkiv once they are rebuilt. I was really planning on doing this. Uh, if the war lasts as long as I expect, and I get to fight, uh, it all depends on how I take to serving in the military. I might, I might end up pursuing a military career. Uh, it seems like something that would be quite prestigious and well paid after the war. Or I might demobilize and go to CS. Uh, since the majority of the world majority of CS jobs in Ukraine are mainly centered on western foreign operations uh, also that's the better word uh, it's unlikely that the IT market will be considerably affected by uh, the devastation due to the war Mike shared some final words on how we can help Ukraine in its struggle Okay, so if you want to help Ukraine, uh, do not donate to the Red Cross. There has been considerable corruption involved in Ukraine, and it has been helping Russia uh, with deporting people to uh, Siberia, for example, from Mariupol. Uh, if, you're, if you want to help civilians, uh, donate to some credible Ukrainian charity. Uh, and if you want to help uh, the military donate to um, come back alive, I think it's called, it's a very prominent charity or NGO, let's say. We're War News Radio, a project of Swarthmore College. This episode was written and produced by Ben Pauly, Jace Flores, Ethan Pintar, Sadie Smart, and Sophia Becker. You can find more reporting at warnewsradio.org. Look out for more from War News Radio wherever you get your podcasts.